So how many of y'all signed up on threads this week? Oh, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. It's the latest offering from uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his seeming ongoing battle for one-upsmanship with Elon Musk. Musk owns Twitter. And this past week, Zuckerberg, who owns Facebook and Instagram, released Threads, a rival social media outlet to Twitter, and that's been labeled the Twitter killer. The thing is, at least from the screenshots I've seen, Threads looks a lot like Twitter. And yet it boasts of a new and far better social media experience, one that will totally transform your online life. Things in life are usually like that, aren't they? Too often, right? Boasting of great impact and great importance, and yet really just a kind of repackaging of old things and old ideas. I mean, apart from the L logo right above the bumper, maybe a little bit of wood grain inside, and a $30,000, $40,000 price difference, a Lexus doesn't look all that different from a Toyota Camry. <laughs> Apologies if you have a Lexus, sorry. <laughs> It makes sense. They're both owned by the same parent company, and yet it's Lexus that boasts of a pursuit of perfection. I mean, you see, with restaurants, the same establishment, selling the same exact items on the menu, where they get a little paint job, put a little bit of decor around the building, put a sign outside that says new ownership, which is really just the previous owner's cousin. <laughs> The price jacks up and they promise a new and better dining experience. We often get caught up and fooled into thinking that anything proposing, boasting to be new and improved is actually better and will actually transform our lives. That's something of what we see in our passage this morning in the book of Job. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Job chapter 32. If you're using one of the Bibles under the cheers, I believe it's on page 438. Somebody can confirm that if, if they're there, 438. If you're new to the Bible, uh, don't really read the Bible often. Please don't feel at all embarrassed. This is a good place to, to start reading the Bible. And so how can you find Job? One way, you can look at the table of contents in the beginning of the Bible. Two, you can just kind of flip to the middle of the Bible. You'll probably find Psalms, which is the biggest book of the Bible, and right before Psalms is the book of Job, all right? We're gonna be in Job chapter 32 this morning, working our way through chapter 37. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, please take that Bible home with you as our gift. We want nothing more than for you to read your own copy of God's Word. Now, we will not read all of Job 32 through 37, to much of you guys' relief. That does not mean the sermon will be short. Amen. Here's what I think is the facts, really. Yeah. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage this morning, these six chapters, and so the main idea of the sermon. You, you kind of want, you do want, all the time, if you can, go to a church where the main idea of what the preacher is saying comes from what the Bible is actually saying. 
right? And so we, we want you to keep your Bible open. You can track and see if what I'm saying is actually what the Bible is saying, right? What the main idea of the sermon is, 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 is close to or right there of what the main idea of the text is. The main idea of, of this passage this morning and what I trust is the main idea of the passage and the sermon is this. The anger of man and the multitude of words do not produce the righteousness of God, but may, however, be used by God for some good. If you've got a bulletin I, that's in there somewhere, so don't feel obligated to write all that down. The anger of man and the multitude of words do not produce the righteousness of God, but may, however, be used by God for some good. In other words, mere human efforts and confronting another person with much fury and many words cannot bring about in the other person the righteous life that God requires or the right response that we seek. And yet sometimes God will use flawed men and women and our flawed efforts for some good purposes. As we walk through these chapters together this morning, we'll hang our thoughts on three lessons we learn from the text. Three points of the sermon. Number one, we learn the great anger of man and his many words provide little help. The great anger of man and his many words provide little help. We'll see that in chapters 32 and 33. Number two, we learn the justice and judgment of God don't answer every question. The justice and judgment of God don't answer every question. We see that in chapter 34 through chapter 36, verse 21. And lastly, third, we learn the greatness of God's works in the world is meant to provoke worship in our lives. The greatness of God's works in the world is meant to provoke worship in our lives. We see that in chapters, chapter 36, verse 22 through the end of chapter 37. If you didn't get those, I'll try to repeat as we go along. Number one, the great anger of man and his many words provide little help. In our passage this morning, we're introduced to a new character even as we approach the end of the book. We see him presented there in chapter 32, verse 2. His name is Elihu. Verse 1 tells us that Job's three friends, who we've met throughout this book, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, who we've heard from quite often in this book and their constant confrontations against Job and criticisms of Job, well, they've stopped speaking. They've stopped answering Job because they think that he is righteous in his own eyes, continually claiming that he has done nothing wrong to bring about all his suffering. Well, as they stop talking and move off the scene, Elihu comes onto the scene. And our first reaction is, who even are you? I mean, where did you come from? Well, we see as we go along that Elihu has been present the whole time because he's, he'll go on to recount some of what he's heard from Job and his friends. Right, Elihu was at that dude at, at, a, at a party or, or standing around ear hustling the whole time, and then he kind of stepped onto the scene and started talking, right? 
You're like, where you come from, chief? He kind of like zaps into the scene. Starting in this chapter, Elihu removes himself from the sidelines and enters into the discussion. And just by, by way of kind of analyzing the structure of this passage and the surrounding passages, note that not only have Job's three friends stopped talking, but also Job has stopped talking. I mean, lift your eyes to where we were last week. The final phrase of the last chapter we studied last week, Job 31, we read the words of Job have ended. Job had given his final defense, claiming his innocence, pointing to the righteous life that he lived for God, confident he hadn't committed any hidden sin that warranted God's punishment, as his friends kept on insisting. And in one of the final verses in the previous passage in chapter 31, in chapter 31, verse 35, Job cries out at the end of his defense, Oh, that I had one to listen to me. Let the Almighty answer me. Job stopped speaking and Job was expecting, longing for the next voice that he heard to be God's himself. And in the passage following ours, the, the passage we'll look at next week, starting in chapter 38, we will see that God, the Almighty, does speak to Job. But sandwiched in between here is Elihu's voice. How disappointed must Job be? Another man and not God. Though Elihu claims to speak for God. We learn about Elihu here a bit. Something about his heritage in verse 2. He's the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. But more in the first five verses, we learn about Elihu's heart. He's an angry man. Four times in the first five verses, we read that Elihu burned with anger. Verse 2, he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Elihu thought that Job claimed to be more righteous than even God himself. In his opinion, in Job claiming to be right, he made the case that God was in the wrong. Verse 3, Elihu also burned with anger at Job's three friends because they knew Job was in the wrong, but could not sufficiently answer Job to finally shut him up. Now, to, to burn with anger in and of itself is not wrong. I mean, we read throughout the Bible that the holy God whom we've sang about burns with anger against people when they sin against him. He burns with anger several times in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel grumble and complain against him. And not only does the Bible show God to be angry in certain instances, but it even says that it's appropriate for people to sometimes be angry. Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, which is repeated by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, instructs us to be angry and do not sin. All right, so this anger does not always equate to sin. When, when things happen or things are occurring against God, opposed to God, and opposed to God's will, anger is an appropriate response when you see injustice, when you experience oppression, when you observe sin. It's not always wrong to be angry. But there is a, such a thing as a wrong anger 
that's aimed at the wrong people for the wrong reasons. Elihu is angry at Job because he thinks Job is self-righteous because of all he said, because of how he's behaved. But that's an assumption based on mishearing and misinterpreting and misapplying Job's word, words that have no real basis. I mean, we've read at the beginning of the book that Job was righteous in God's sight. God commends Job even as Elihu and others condemn Job. Elihu's burning anger that's been bottled up inside comes out in the same way that much of our anger that's been bottled up inside for days and weeks and months comes out in many words. Our words are a reflection of our hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. And Elihu has a lot to say. I mean, basically, all of chapter 32 is him telling us how much he has to tell us. I mean, look at verse 6. He starts off acknowledging his youth compared to Job and his friends. He says, I am young and you are aged. Because of this, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. He initially deferred to the old heads, to the OGs to speak sound wisdom. But you know how young folks are. We got a short fuse. We got short patience. If we don't hear what we want, if we don't hear what we think is satisfactory, then we just going to have to step in. Elihu concluded in, in verses 8 and 9, everybody has wisdom. I mean, everybody is made in the image of God, and everybody has the breath of God breathed in them. It's not just the old who are wise. I'm wise too, Elihu says. Verse 10, therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. Hear what I got to say, because I've heard enough of what you have to say. He says in verse 12, I gave you my attention for a time, but there were none of you, none of you Job's friends who refuted Job or shut him down. Verse 13, maybe you friends think the wisest thing now is to be silent and for God to answer Job, for God to shut him down, for God to vanquish and to conquer Job, not a man. Verse 14, think again. I'm going to answer Job because I'm not going to answer him with your weak saw speeches. I'm going to plot a different line of defense than your flimsy little arguments. Drop down to verse, verses 17 through 20. Elihu says, I also will answer with my share. I also will declare my opinion. For I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains, or a better translation, compels me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Elihu's words sound something like the secret confessions of a chronic social media user. I mean, when you look at the volume and vehemence in which some people post, you figure this has just got to be what's going on inside of them. 
friends, beware that often social media platforms that offer unfettered opportunities for you to express yourself, to declare your opinion, are not good for you or for others. They can breed and breathe into a kind of self-importance that thinks that my voice, my opinion just has to be heard. But lest we let ourselves off the hook because we aren't those people. I don't even use social media, you might say. Well, consider ways you might be that person. I mean, do you just have to speak at a social gathering? When you enter a room and a conversation is already going on, do you have to give your two cents? Let your thoughts be known no matter the subject matter, whether it's religion or race or politics or problems in society or sports or science, it does not matter. You just have to butt into the conversation. Have you ever been in a situation where someone is struggling with with something serious, with something deep, and others are giving counsel or are involved. And you hold out for time, but the whole time inside you're thinking, if only I got a word in. My contribution is really needed to really change that person's mind and behavior. And so you interrupt the conversation. You insert yourself into the situation to let your thoughts, your concerns, your counsel, your criticisms come out. Are you that kind of person? Undoubtedly, many of us are, and many of us are right now thinking of who else is that kind of person, but I want you to think about yourself. Are you that kind of person? Well, what is it that drives that kind of behavior in us? Often it's pride. That feels like we are uniquely gifted or equipped to say a word that will absolutely turn somebody else around. That will be the decisive factor in a situation. It's the pride that the Bible often ties to youthfulness. Elihu said, I am young in years, and it shows. With his overestimation of his own importance and influence and his underestimation of others and their situation. It's the youthful spirit that typifies young people and too often shows up in old folks as well. You know, the Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But older folks can be foolish too often exhibited in how we foolishly use many words to build up ourselves instead of others. I mean, notice there in, in verse 20, Elihu says, I must speak that I might find relief. <laughs> it's incredibly transparent and incredibly troubling considering who Elihu is in the presence of. Pitiful Job. In misery for months now, his body and soul agonizing in pain, and yet Elihu thinks about speaking only for his own personal relief. I got to get this off my chest more than I got to bear your burdens and sorrows. I need relief more than I need to help you and relieve you. 
his speech flows first from a focus to satisfy self rather than to strengthen and to sustain others. Two commands concerning speech that Elihu would have done well heeding to and that we would do well heeding to. The first we heard Linnell read for us earlier in James chapter 1, verse 19. Be slow to speak. Slow to anger. Quick to hear. The other is in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, where we read the apostle Paul command us to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. No corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only speak, only give talk, only express feelings that are good for building up. As fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, some of the godliest, most encouraging people in our church are the softest spoken. May the Lord help us to follow their example and to restrain our lips. And when we do speak, to seek to build up others and give grace. Pray that for yourselves. Pray that for our church. After talking about how much he has to talk about, Elihu finally directly addresses Job in chapter 33. But again, he starts off rambling. Chapter 3, verse, chapter 33, verse 1, he says, Hear my speech, O Job, listen to all my words. And he starts off boasting, verse 3 of chapter 33. My words declare the uprightness of my heart, and my lips know that they speak sincerely. We want Elihu to, to stop talking about what is going to be his speech and just let us judge for ourselves what your speech is, is right? Well, he finally gets to his main point, his beef with Job in verses 8 through 11. He says, Job, you say, I'm pure without transgression and there is no iniquity in me, but that God still finds occasions to count me as his enemy. Now, that's not what Job has said. He never literally says that he's without transgression and there is no iniquity in him. I mean, the way Elihu and Job's friends have stated it, Job claims absolute sinlessness as if he's the perfect man. In that way, no matter how much Elihu claims to speak differently than Job's three friends, he often sounds just like them, making the same false accusations. No, Job throughout has acknowledged that he's a sinner, as all men and women are since Adam sinned and sin entered into the world and passed down through the world to every man and woman like a curse. That's why we need Christ, because every person is a sinner. Job acknowledged that. He knew that. He didn't live a perfect life. He was a sinner. But what he has denied is any secret, unconfessed, unrepented of sin that is the reason for his suffering. But, you know, when you only listen so that you can launch in to talk, you often become hard of hearing and of listening well. 
You often, like Elihu, mishear and misrepresent what you claim to have heard. But it still doesn't slow you down from boldly responding. Elihu declares in verse 12, behold, you are not right. I will answer you for God is greater than man. Well, duh. <laughs> Job has never denied that. What is your point? He goes on in verse 13. You keep contending with God. Job, you keep saying that God will answer none of man's words. And here, starting in verse 14, is where Elihu does make some contributions to the situation. He notes different ways God speaks other than direct dialogue. Look at verse 14. He says, God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. One way God speaks, verse 15, is in a dream, in a vision. And the purpose, verse 17, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man and keep his soul from the pit. Verse 19, another way God speaks is through sending pain. Man, Elihu says, is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. Perhaps it's verses like this that C.S. Lewis famously quipped, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Job has been in great pain. Elihu says, this is one way God is speaking to you, Job. He is not silent and distant as you claim. The pain you feel so sharply is God talking to you most loudly. And again, the purpose, verse 22, is to keep your soul, which is near the pit, from actually going down into it. And so there's some help in understanding here that Elihu gives. Job's friends said that Job's pain was only God punishing Job. Job in his pain said God was silent. Elihu says God is speaking to you in your pain and for purposes other than punishment, for prevention, to keep you from further suffering, to keep your soul from the pit of death and even worse, from the pit of hell. So Elihu, even with all his braggadociousness and all his boastful approach, is not of no help, but of little help. Even with people with wrong approaches and wrong motives can be right sometimes and used by God. The problem, though, as with many of Job's friends, is that the solution doesn't really fit Job's situation. Job's life was not one that was already drifting near going down to the pit. Right? Job wasn't near the pit of hell. He wasn't out there like, you know, straying away from the Lord and close to judgment and punishment. We've read again in chapters 1 and 2 that Job lived an upright, God-fearing life. But at least a lie who gives more insight into God's purposes for pain. Not just to punish sin, but to prevent people from ultimate punishment from sin. There's a third way Elihu says that God speaks in verse 23 of chapter 33. Through an angel, through a messenger, through a mediator, 
to declare to a man what is right to him or right for him and to plead to God to be merciful and deliver him from going down into the pit. And given the context, obviously, Elihu feels that he is such a mediator. He is one filling that role. He is there wisely declaring to Job what he must do. Job, admit your wrongs, accept God's affliction as a means to rescue you, and pray to God for restoration. Verse 27, say to God, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and God will forgive you and all will be made well. But Job has not sinned, not to earn this suffering. And even more, Elihu isn't the right mediator for sin. Oh, a mediator is needed. A man to mediate is needed, needed, but not this man. No, there is one mediator between God and man. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He took on flesh and became a man. He came to earth not just to declare to man what is right, as Elihu says, but to do for man what is right. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I, as men and women, should have lived for God. And then after living that perfect life, Jesus not only had did what we should have done, but Jesus then died for the sins that we, didn't, that, that we did do, for the ways that we did not live for the Lord. He died for our sins. He died in our place as our substitute so that we might be reconciled to God. He lived for us and he died for us and he rose again for for us and he now does declare to us what we need to do. Repent of our sins. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and we will be saved. Friends, if you get nothing else from this message this morning and you are not a Christian, that's what you must take home. That's what you must respond to even now, that you do need a mediator, but nothing in this world and no one in this world can fill the gap between you and God. Drugs can't do it. Alcohol can't do it. Your mama can't do it. And her righteousness, she could be the godliest woman in the world. She can't save you. She can't be your mediator. There's one mediator. His name is Jesus Christ. He loved you so much that he gave his life for you and me so that we might be saved. If you don't know Jesus, even now from your seat, put your trust in him. Call out to him. Ask the Lord to save you. And he will do it. If you have any questions about that, if you want to talk more about what that looks like in your life, talk to anybody around you. If they don't know, then ask the next person next to them. Talk to me at the door after service. We'd love to talk talk to you about a better mediator than Elihu. A better mediator than any of us. We're going to point you to the true and ultimate mediator, Jesus Christ, and what he's done. Elihu was not Jesus. No man is. But he was confident that he, with his great anger and his many words, could rescue Job. Could make Job confess and repent and be righteous in God's sight. I mean, look at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 33. He tells Job again, pay attention. Listen to me. Verse 32, for I desire to justify you. (laughs) Who does Elihu think he is? Elihu boastfully thought his words could impact and influence Job. 
that he alone could do what none of the three friends could do, that he could do what only God does, turn Job's life around. It's the kind of boastfulness that sometimes we think that we can do. If I just talk to that brother or sister, if I just talk to that unbelieving family member, if I just had enough influence, they would turn around. No, God is the one who turns folks around. We don't need to boast in our words. We lay out in front of people what God has done to turn them around, and we trust God with the work. Elihu had great ambitions and great anger and a great amount of words, but they provided little actual help at least not to Job. The great anger of man and the multitude of his words often provide little help. That's one lesson we learn in these two chapters that begin our passage this morning. The second lesson we learn is, number two, the justice and judgment of God don't answer every question. The justice and judgment of God don't answer every question. Is God fair? That's the question that many people have wrestled with for many centuries. Perhaps it's the question that some of you are wrestling with this morning. Maybe it's from a a viewpoint of skepticism. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're you're trying to see if you believe and you're kind of skeptical. You're searching for answers in order to make a firm decision about God. And one of the questions you might have in your mind is, is God fair? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you are skeptical and seeking, you are more than welcome. You can come every single Sunday. Skeptics are welcome. We pray you don't leave the same as you came. We pray that you will leave with more clarity and conviction, but we we want you to be honest about where you are and to bring your honest questions to God this morning. That's one of the things the book of Job teaches us that we can do. Maybe you ask the question from a position of skepticism, or maybe you ask the question of God's fairness, not from a position of being skeptical, but but from a position of deep faith in God, a firm trust in God, but still wrestling from time to time with hard questions for the Lord. Still wrestling sometimes with real feelings, feelings like from time to time that God's actions seem unfair, seem unjustified, especially when heinous crimes or horrible calamities happen. Friends, that does not mean that you are not a Christian if you ever have those questions. It does not mean that your faith is failing. Those kind of questions could actually be the gateway to growing your faith. Job has been wrestling throughout this book, knowing he's lived uprightly and yet wondering why God has treated him so wrongly, been so cruel to him, seemingly denied him justice by treating him as if he were guilty. And yet has not brought any formal charges against Job. He longs to hear from God. Tell me if I've sinned exactly what I've done. Well, in chapter 34, Elihu initially turns his attention away from talking directly to Job to talking about Job and calling all the wise people of the world to join him in attacking Job and vindicating God's justice. I mean, look at chapter 34, verse 2. He calls all the wise men to join him. And verse 4, let us choose for ourselves what is right. Let us choose for ourselves who is right, God or Job. Verse 5, listen to what Job says. He says, I am in the right. 
And God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. Elihu summarizes what he feels is Job's defense, and he calls all to join with him in analyzing Job's words and to come to only one conclusion, that in claiming to be right, he is claiming God to be in the wrong. In Elihu's mind, two things can't be true. Job can't be right, and God can't be right. If Job claims to be right, then God must be wrong. If God is right, then Job must be wrong. One of the things we'll see at the outcome is that both Job and God are right. Amen. But Elihu can't figure that kind of math out. It don't add up. But you know, things, when things don't make neat sense to us, right? We can't fit those things in a good, neat theological box where we throw out the whole box, right? We, we lean in on the system rather than leaning on the scriptures. Right? Elihu says the only way it can work out is that Job is wrong and is a great sinner. And look at how he ups the ante of his attack. In verse 7, he says, What man ever has lived like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? Job is the anti-Psalm 1 man. You know, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the path of the ungodly or the way of the wicked. No, Job is the ungodly man who always walks in the path of the wicked and the ungodly. Right? It's so striking how so clear Job's friends are about Job and how wrong they are. You can be really passionate and really wrong. <laughs> he goes on, he says, Job says, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. That's not what Job said. Job has only said before that in this life, it's often that the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And that both the wicked and the righteous experience sorrow and trouble. Well, you know, who needs precision when you're trying to make a point? The point that Elihu wants to make is that Job is a great sinner and I'll use any kind of words, even if I got to twist them a little bit to make that point. And again, it's the same point Job's three friends have continued to make. Elihu, again, for all his claims of superiority, of a new, better experience, is repackaging the same old ideas, the same rehearsed responses. Job is a sinner, and God is just. He says in verse 10, far be it from God that he should do wickedness or wrong, Verse 11, for according to the work of a man, God will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it before him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He goes on in verses 17 through 19 to show that God is no respecter of persons. Verse 18, God says to a king, worthless one. And to nobles, wicked man. He's not impressed by folks. He shows no partiality to princes and does not regard the rich more than the poor. But what Elihu declares is true. God is a just God who will not do wickedly or pervert justice for anyone. Friends, again, so if you're wrestling with the question of God's justice, God's fairness, I pray that even these truths comfort you this morning. 
in a world where there is so much injustice, where so much wickedness occurs, where so many murderers and carjackers and rapists and robbers remain on the streets and never get caught, where so many judges and politicians seem to rule only to benefit the well-off, I pray it comforts you to know that there is one who does always uphold justice, who never perverts justice, who is absolutely good and just, God himself. Because he is a good and just God, he must and will punish sin. That's why hell exists. But that justice of God does not answer every problem or pain in life. You can't apply that across the surface for every single situation. Eli, who talks in verse 11 about how God repays people for what they've done. He says much of the same thing in verses 21 through 30. But as we've noted throughout this book, that doesn't always happen here and now. As you see many places in the Bible, in places like Psalm 73, the wicked are having a wonderful time often. And the righteous have what seems like a wretched life. And that kind of mindset, God is always just in every situation that you see that God always punishes the wicked and prospers the righteous. That can be used as a harsh tool when you see people suffering and searching for answers. And all you have to offer is the assumption that it's God judging them for their sin. The justice of God is on display. Elihu concludes that all Job's words throughout this book, insisting on his innocence, wrestling with God to hear from him, to find out why he was suffering, they are all nonsense. He says in verse 35, Job speaks without knowledge. Saying in verse 37 that Job adds rebellion to his sin. I mean, his hidden sin, which just must be the cause for his suffering, is now compounded by rebellion in daring to defy God, daring to question God. We see here Elihu's view of Job and Elihu's view of God. Job is a sinner, and God is just, repaying Job for his sins. But you know, if those are the only two categories that you have, you will have a pretty deficient view of people and a pretty deficient view of God. People are more than sinners, and God is more than just a God of justice. I mean, holding to those distinctions only set God and people in a kind of cold, formal, impersonal relationship. I mean, you see that in Elihu's words in chapter 35. Look down in, in, in verse 7 of chapter 35. In criticizing Job's claimed innocence, Elihu asks, if you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Now, we know that a righteous life can't earn anything from God. We can't earn God's good favor to us or his blessings the greatest of which is salvation. But the way some of us think is the way Elihu states it here. It's as if a righteous life, which Job keeps claiming, 
is of no use at all. That God just coldly judges deeds as good or evil and takes no delight in his people living for him. That's just not true. Time and time again, the scriptures say that our actions born out of our affections for God actually please God. Our obedience, our holiness, our resisting sin and temptation, our lovingly looking out for one another pleases the Lord. It's why the apostle Paul prays in Colossians 1, 10 through 12, for the Colossian church to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in lights. God isn't just a just God a God of justice. God is our God and our heavenly father who loves and cares for and delights in and rejoices over his people. He looks at our righteous lives and he says, I am well pleased. He looks at his beloved son in whom he is well pleased and he sees us hidden in him and he is well pleased in us even through all our mess. Job ain't perfect. Job got problems, but in Job working to live a life that honors the Lord, the Lord ain't looking back at Job and says, you ain't hit 100%. And so I'm going to strike you for every mark off 100%. God don't operate like that. When we are the Lord's, he looks at us and he is pleased when we want to honor him. When we want to live a life as if he's done something for us. Right? Not because we want him to do something for us. He's already been kind to us. Amen. All of sin and deserve hell. Any day above the ground and outside of hell is a day of God's goodness. Amen. And so we live every day as a gratitude, an act of gratitude to God. Elihu just doesn't have that picture of God. The picture of God that he has as only judge perverts who God actually is to his people. But it's the picture Elihu continues to paint. An impersonal God who is only judging Job is why he says in verses 9 through 16, God doesn't answer Job's prayers as a form of God's judgment for Job's sin. Look at verse 12 of chapter 35. He says, they, people, did I miss that? No, chapter 35, yeah, yeah, chapter 35, verse 12, sorry. They, people, cry out, but he, God, does not answer. Why? Because of the pride of evil men, men like Job. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, which are what Job's words are, empty, nor does the Almighty regard it. You see how cold and insensitive and unsatisfying Elihu's words are? Your prayers aren't answered as a form of God's just judgment of you. That's the only possible reason. It sounds like many of the guilt-assuming and guilt-inducing reasons people give today for unanswered prayers. 
some of the guilt-assuming and guilt-inducing reasons that many, sadly, pastors give people for why God has not answered their prayers. Because you have insufficient faith. Because you didn't pray hard enough or long enough or you pray with the wrong intentions or there's some sin that's secret and hidden in your life that's blocking God's line. And God's judgment of you is a no to your prayers or a silence to your prayers. That may sometimes be true, but not always. Some of the godliest people have been met with unanswered prayer. Some of the godliest people have been met with a no to their constant prayers. Paul cried out three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed, but it remained. Jesus cried out in the garden of Gethsemane for the father to take the cup of his wrath away from me and for there to be another way if possible. He ended up on the cross. God didn't say no because they'd sinned and he was a just God. God had other purposes behind his response to their prayers. He was caring for Paul and keeping him from pride. He was meaning to glorify his son Jesus even by his horrific suffering on the cross and planning to graciously save millions of people throughout all the ages like you and me. And friends, God's no or not now to your prayers may be for a number of reasons and not just because he's just, but also because he's good. And he actually means through his no or through his not now to do good to you. The justice and judgment of God don't answer every question. Elihu hasn't understood that. I mean, stretching into the first 21 verses of chapter 36, he continues down the line of God's justice and judgment displayed in his afflicting the wicked. But there are glimpses of help, of good that God sheds through Elihu. For instance, in chapter 37, verse 10, he says that upon afflicting those who act arrogantly against him, God opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. In verse 15, he delivers, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity. Elihu is inching a little closer to light. He's still off, claiming that affliction of Job and others is caused by sin, but he's no longer only looking at the cause of affliction, but the goal of it, to draw people to lure people, to lure Job by affliction more and more to God. Which leads to our third and final point. The greatness of God's works in the world is meant to provoke worship in our lives. In the latter part of chapter 36 and through chapter 37, we get Elihu's best contribution. Here, he finally stops looking down at and talking down to Job in his great misery, he stops pointing to and talking about himself and his great words of wisdom. And he instead points to and talks about God and his great works. Look at God, Elihu says, and worship him. Look with me at chapter 36, verse 2. Elihu says, behold God. 
Look at the Lord. See him exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? No one in all the world. Verse 24, remember to extol or praise his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Every human being sees the things the Lord has made. We live in his world beholding his works. And it should lead us again to behold not just his works, but to behold him. Verse 26, behold God. And in looking at all he's done, what should we conclude? God is great. And we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. That's not to say that you can't know God at all. God's creation makes him known. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through the things that he's made. And better than creation, God has made himself fully known in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God. The one who in his incarnation and coming to earth as a man, John chapter 1 verse 18 says, has made the father known. If you want to truly know God, who he is and what he's like, you must submit yourself to his son, Jesus Christ. So it's not that you and I can't know God at all, but that you and I can't know all of God. All right. I, I mean, he's God. <laughs> he's infinite in power and wisdom, and we are finite. There are limits to our understanding so that we can't know all his ways. We can't search out all he's doing all the days or months of, or, or years. You can't Google God. And get a kind of exhaustive results back on him. There are unending pages. You know, if you Google sometimes, you get a run out and say, view more results. Right? God, if you Google God, it's going to be viewing more results for all of eternity. And you still won't figure all of him out. He's not like us. And that's good for us. I mean, if you could figure God out, then he wouldn't be God. Right? His rule is expansive. His works are powerful and is meant to invoke worship in us as we see his great wisdom at work in all the world. And the work that Elihu points to, to demonstrate God's great work and wisdom that is unsearchable, is a thunderstorm. It's familiar imagery. Last week, towards the end of chapter 28, we saw the same imagery as Job used the thunderstorm there to talk about wisdom. Why is a thunderstorm continually brought up? Well, for one, it's easily observable. Storms happen often. We saw that this week in our own area, right? It's like a storm every day. And you see when a storm come through, you don't just be sitting there like yawning. Like it'd be times you'd be like, ooh, okay, all right. A little jump scare, right? You see and feel the effects of a storm, and you, you see and feel the elements in a storm. And yet, even with all you do see in a storm, you don't see everything. Elihu talks in chapter 27, of verse, uh, verse 27 of, of chapter 36, of God's hand drawing up drops of water. 
They distill his mist and rain, which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Can anyone understand the spreading of the clouds, the thunderings of his pavilion? Behold, he scatters his lightning about him and covers the roots of the sea. Verse 31, chapter 36. By these thunderstorms, he judges people. And by these, he blesses people. He gives food in abundance by the rain that drops from a storm and waters the earth and produces crops. A storm can be terrible and terrific at the same time. A storm can both frighten people and at the same time nourish them. In the midst of it, you don't know all that God is doing. Into chapter 37, Elihu continues describing a storm. I mean, notice all the references to thunder and lightnings in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, and the scattering winds in verse 9. And notice what Elihu says their purpose is. To reveal just a slice of God's glory and majesty. They are further ways that God speaks of his greatness and bigness. I mean, look at all the references to God's voice. Verse 2, keep listening to the thunder of his voice. Verse 4, his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. And he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Verse 5, God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot totally comprehend. God as it were, speaks in a storm about his supremacy and power, and we cannot catch it all. And that's okay. Because it shows that he's God and we are not. And again, look at what he does in a storm. The different purposes he has for it. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 37. We read that the, the clouds and the lightnings and the rains they turn around and around by God's guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. And what is it that God means to accomplish, the different purposes that he means to accomplish? Well, look at verse 13. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. A storm might be to correct or discipline people, it might be to care for the land that God made, or it might be as an act of love for his people, revealing more of himself and his power and wonder and welcoming them to worship him. And here's the point. If that's true of a physical storm, it's also true of the figurative storms that God sends in our lives. Oh, God will send some storms, some sorrows, some troubles, some suffering. But we are not wise enough to know exactly what the Lord is doing in and through them or what the purposes are. Many of us jump to conclusions. God is judging me for something or judging you for some sin. Or God is correcting me for something. Maybe. Or perhaps it's an act of his love, causing you to rely less and less on yourself in your own strength and more and more and more 
on his unbounded strength. Maybe your suffering is for the sake of others. That you might be comforted in your suffering so that you might be able to, in turn, comfort those who are suffering with the same comfort with which you yourself have been comforted by God. The point is, you and I don't know. And again, that's okay because there's a lot about God that we simply don't know. Elihu calls God, Job to just stop and consider all the wondrous works of God and all he doesn't know. Verse 15, do you know how God lays his command and causes the lightning of the clouds to shine? No. Verse 16, do you know the balancing of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Again, the answer is no. There's much we don't know. But what we do know is that God is great and wise and good, and we must simply trust him even when, and maybe especially when, we can't track exactly what he's doing in our lives. Look at verse 22. Elihu says, God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men worship him, revere him, love him. For he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceits. Even with all his pomp and pride, his great anger and many words, we can't and shouldn't totally dismiss Elihu. A broke clock is right at least twice a day. A deeply flawed saint is not a totally false saint. They can deliver golden and profound truths, truths that we need to cherish. So saints, two admonitions are needed. Number one, don't be Elihu. <laughs> be humble, as we said earlier. Be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to hear. But also, number two, don't write off every Elihu as totally irre irrelevant. That brash, talkative, temperamental member can still speak truth in your life. Elihu has spoken some foolish things, some harsh things, things that have not totally transformed Job and made him confess sin. There's no known sin, that's the issue. But God has used Elihu, even with all his issues, for some good. To testify, especially here at the end of these speeches, to the wondrous ways of God and to call Job, to call us to worship him, even if we don't know what God is doing. Elihu, even imperfectly, has prepared the way for the perfect God to speak which is the next voice we'll hear next week. But as we wait to hear from him, as Job waits to hear from him, in whatever issues and storms he may send our way this week, let us lift our eyes to him and worship him. He's great and is doing great things in and through the storms. Consider Job's life. 
consider Jesus' life. His suffering on the cross did great things. It was a terrible time, but it saved us for all eternity. Consider your life. What has he done through your past troubles? What lessons has he taught you? What is he doing even now? He's working. Trust him. Worship him even as he works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that gives life and light. Lord, we pray that you would instruct our hearts, instruct our mouths and our minds by your word. Apply your word to us that we might live more trustingly, waiting for you, worshiping you, uh, Lord, helping others even as we wait. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.